You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Shannon Osaka, climate zeitgeist reporter for The Washington Post. And today we're going to have two very interesting segments on electric vehicles. Later, we'll hear from WeaveGrid co-founder and CEO Apoor Bargava. But first, I am happy to be joined by David Hochschild, chair of the California Energy Commission. David, thanks for joining us. Good morning. It might be helpful to start just by hearing about California's Energy Commission, what it actually does, what's it responsible for? Yeah, so we're a 700-person state agency with about a $9 billion budget charged with getting California to 100% clean electricity. We're at about roughly 60% carbon-free electricity today. Uh, we're also working to electrify almost everything. So we're putting about $4 billion into electric vehicle charging infrastructure. We also set all the codes and standards for new construction. We mandate solar on all new homes, high-efficiency windows, LED lights, and appliances as well, televisions, refrigerators. We set energy standards for all those devices. I'm really working to make um, a future where everything that connects to the grid is a good citizen of the grid because there's so much electrification happening now from heat pumps to electric vehicles, electric school buses, and even the electrification of rail. Um, all that's underway, so we work on all those issues. When we're thinking about that electrification, obviously EVs are a huge part of that. And we've seen a little bit, I mean, EV sales continue to grow, but we've seen sort of a slowdown in that growth in recent months. I mean, what do you attribute that to? So people should not mistake the forest for the trees here. Um, <laughs> in the growth of, as we've seen with solar, with wind, um, and with many other clean energy technologies, um, there are always temporary setbacks on the road to um, going mainstream. And I think we saw this, a really good way to think about this is circa 2000, you know, somebody predicting the demise of cell phones or in 2010 predicting that solar would not be uh, a mainstream technology. You know, cell phones are everywhere. Uh, solar power is now the fastest growing, lowest cost source of energy in the country. Almost all new electric grid capacity additions in the United States will be met with utility scale solar from now to next few years. Um, and electric vehicles are really in that category. The headwinds we were facing this last year included high interest rates and some supply chain constraints, and those are temporary. So overall, what's happening in California, I do think is a postcard for the nation. We're now at 25% of our vehicles sold being electric. Uh, that's up from 8% uh, just when, when Gavin Newsom took office five years ago as governor. And the best-selling car in the state of California is electric. We're the first state where that's the case. And I really see uh, the winds really starting to turn uh, in favor of EUs now uh, very aggressively. And the California Air Resources Board has passed a measure that requires all cars, SUVs, pickup trucks for, to have zero tailpipe emissions by 2035. And, you know, that's getting to 100 percent. You mentioned we're at about 25 percent right now. I mean, do you expect that goal to be really feasible? Right now, electric vehicles are still on the expensive side. Absolutely. And to me, you know, it's not just that it's possible. It's that it's inevitable. Um, if you look at the fundamentals the battery pack is half the cost of the car, okay? Um, where are we with battery costs? Well, a decade ago, it was $1,000 a kilowatt hour. We're now in the $135, $140 a kilowatt hour. We fund at the Energy Commission 
all these next generation battery technologies, Qbert, Spark, Sepion, CoreShell, and so many more. What is coming in batteries is incredibly exciting. It's not just, we have technologies that are gonna do 70% better energy density, but also a lot lower cost and safer. And so with that, um, there'll be a tipping point where electric vehicles are not only better, they're cheaper. And that is why the markets recognize this. I think it is worth noting, you know, the most valuable car company in the world is electric car company, Tesla. And they're not the most valuable by a little bit. They're three and a half times Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis combined. And why is that? It's because the market's really rewarding the companies that are furthest along on electrification. And I do want to commend all those other companies for leaning in to electric, the electric Ford F-150 and other vehicles being made now. Uh, incredibly exciting, but this all gets easier and faster and better and cheaper as battery technology um, improves. The vehicles itself, I mean, I think it's been uh, the case that really everybody who gets an electric car and buys one, it's generally a very positive experience. People tend not to want to go back. I got an electric car six years ago. I will never buy another you know, gasoline car again. This experience is so much better and 90% fewer components and much more reliable, uh, less maintenance. And so I think uh, as battery technology comes down and we get the industry to scale, um, you'll see a lot more cost coming down. I will say the other piece of this is the charging infrastructure. And so we're putting, as I mentioned, about $4 billion of public funds into EV charging at here at the Energy Commission in the state of California. We now have more electric vehicle chargers in the state than we have gasoline nozzles. So we have about 94,000 public chargers in California. Our state goal is just over a million. Uh, and uh, we're about 60,000 gasoline nozzles, but we need to do more of that. We need more fast chargers. Only 10,000 of the 94,000 are fast chargers. And so we're working hard to get that infrastructure deployed. And that is also going to accelerate sales uh, as we do that. I want to come back to that charging question a bit later, because that is so crucial in this transformation. I'm curious first, though, I mean, we've seen a lot of OEMs, auto companies really invest a lot in electric vehicles. At the moment, you know, still most of the profits are coming from the gas side of the industry, though. I mean, what has been the industry response to California's move here? Have you seen a lot of um, automakers really embracing this or has there been resistance? I don't think there's a single major automaker left in the world that's not developing an electric vehicle model. And if you're in a company that's making vehicles and you're not doing electric, um, you're kind of betting against the future. And so that is why you're starting to see more and more OEMs accelerate. And, and some companies announce like they're going entirely electric and you know, look at the transition VW has been through, right? And, and uh, and GM and, and others, uh, and the cars that are coming out are fantastic. I got to drive the Ford F-150 Lightning a few weeks ago, phenomenal vehicle. And of course, has all these other wonderful features. You can plug uh, things into it. If you're a contractor driving that car, you don't need a generator because uh, you have the battery pack. Um, so I'm really excited and encouraged generally, globally, by what we're starting to see on electric vehicle models coming out. And I think, um, demand for those is only going to grow. It will follow a very similar model I think we saw with rooftop solar, where uh, if you look at how solar developed, you know somebody in their neighborhood would get a rooftop solar system, and then the person across the street would say, hey, I want one of those. And you're sort of starting to see that with electric vehicles, just having more of them out there 
uh, is sort of the best advertisement, and you're getting a lot of that peer-to-peer -peer adoption uh, going on right now. We still have a pretty high, you know, EV sale price, and I, I totally agree with you. Having driven EVs before, it is just an amazing experience. It's totally different from from the gas car. At the same time, you know, the average EV sale price I think was about fifty three thousand dollars in July. You know, there are car makers like BYD in China that are making much lower cost, much cheaper um, electric vehicles. I mean, and at the moment, there are certain restrictions that keep those vehicles from entering the U.S. I mean, do you think that has the potential to slow down this transition? Can we wait for sort of the more American automakers to bring those costs down? Well, so first of all, there are more entry-level vehicles out there with the tax credits. You know, Chevy Bolt is 25000 and uh, there's others as well, Leaf and so forth. Um, but I think it's really important for buyers not just to look at the sticker cost, but also to look at the cost to operate the vehicle. So it's about half the price per mile to drive an electric car as opposed to conventional. And then your maintenance cost goes way down. You're not dealing with oil changes and air filters and spark plugs and mufflers or any number of other things, including catalytic converter thefts and, and so forth. Um, <laughs> it's just, there's 90% fewer components. So your cost to maintain and operate the vehicle is much lower. And when you add that in and you look at a five or 10 year uh, Horizon, which is the smart way to, I think, approach a decision like this, EVs are already cheaper. Um, the sticker price, as you point out, that is true, um, but that is a moving target. It's going to move long term in the right direction just because of what's happening with batteries. And a good, good thing to keep in mind when you look at the bigger picture, okay, what's going to drive battery costs down? Why should we be optimistic about battery costs coming down? And you add up all the industries that are depending on lithium-ion batteries, everything from cell phones to laptops to vehicles to stationary energy storage to all sorts of other things, so electric scooters, everything, you name it. Um, all those industries are investing R&D and market demand, which is creating scale. Um, and so Batteries follow the same law as every other technology. It's not complicated what drives cost down. It's innovation, automation, and scale. And it's mostly scale. And so that is happening in the battery sector as never before. And so I do think it's worth looking at history. We went through this with solar, with wind, with cell phones, and so many other things. So it's really on that, on that pathway. And that's why I think... Um, we do have good reason to be to be confident that batteries uh, costs are going to continue to come down and, and therefore EV costs along with them. I'm glad you brought up that maintenance side of things. I know it surprises many people I talk to when they get a new EV, they open the user's manual and it says basically first major service except for tire rotations is at 100,000 miles. It's very different. Um, yeah than a gas car. I mean, one interesting thing that I've reported on with respect to this maintenance is the, the sort of car dealership question and whether car dealerships are going to be able to sort of maintain um, their income levels without as much maintenance, which is obviously a big component. There was a Sierra Club survey at the end of 2022 that found that 30% of the dealers they surveyed didn't want to offer EVs. Now, this may be a different story in California, which has been so pro-EV, but you know, do you see this as an obstacle for adoption? Um, have you seen ways of addressing this? So I think in any transition, uh, there is going to be ch some change. Okay, so um, 
I will say in this case, it is good for consumers not to have to pay as much to have your car serviced. So that is a public good. Um, there are a lot of other new jobs being created and we need a lot more people working, for example, in EV charging systems and of course in battery manufacturing. And let me just highlight for a moment what is happening there. Uh, thanks to President Biden, we have a historic set of tax credits which are heavily incentivizing bringing battery manufacturing back to the United States. We don't want China to become the Saudi Arabia of batteries. And so there's a huge push, not just for batteries, but also going further upstream for lithium development. We're doing a massive lithium development effort here in California called Lithium Valley. We have enough lithium to provide um, for 375 million electric vehicles just with lithium from uh, California. And there's a lot of jobs to be found in those sectors. Um, so I don't want to say that everything is going to stay the same because there will be some a change with uh, the introduction and the growth of electric vehicles, but there's also a lot of new opportunities in there. And so for people in car dealerships and so on, I think I could see models changing where, for example, uh, you begin to sell home electric vehicle chargers, and that becomes a whole new business um, to get those sold and financed and installed. Uh, and so there's a lot of new jobs uh, that will come with this, even as some of the other jobs um, will by necessity wind down because hopefully people are having to spend less money getting their car serviced and their air filters and oil replaced and so forth. We received um, a ton of audience questions, over 200, and a lot of them talked about range anxiety, which I think for folks that have maybe not driven an EV or experienced it very much is, you know, still a really big fear that they won't be able to find a charger or they won't be able to take the road trip that they want to do. What do you say to those folks about, you know, the state of California fast charging and how the state is really building out the infrastructure to avoid that problem? Yeah. So help is on the way. Um, and uh, when I got I got a Chevy Bolt, uh, my wife and I, six years ago, and at the time it was called the Prozac for range anxiety. <laughs> so uh, 259 miles. Uh, by the way, I've had no issues with it. Love the car. I got my parents to get the car, my wife's parents, and honestly, about 20 friends at this point. Um, and uh, so we have 10,000 fast chargers in the state of California. Um, we are installing many more. One, uh, I think, very positive development around fast charging is what's called NACS, which is the North American Charging Standard, formerly known as the Tesla plug. So Tesla has made that open source, and about 75% of the major auto manufacturers have now announced they're changing to that plug, and that can support up to one megawatt charging. Very, very fast. That network is very well maintained. There's 6,000 Tesla chargers in California. That's going to triple in the next two years. Um, and then generally with chargers, um, so we have three levels. There's level one, which is just a home wall outlet, and you can plug that in overnight in your garage. That's very slow. It's about four miles of charge per hour. There's level two, which is the vast majority of chargers that are out there, and that's about 25 miles of charge per hour. And then the fast chargers, which is level three, can be you know, up to 150 miles or, or greater um, in 30 minutes. And there's actually a lot of help coming there, too. I was you know, just meeting with some companies that are looking at um, 650 kW charging. So you can do 200 miles of charge in three minutes uh, with that, which is an experience that's really uh, not really different than going to the gas station. Um, but one thing to keep in mind, every year for virtually every model, 
of EVs, the range is getting longer. So that actually does reduce the number of times you need to charge. And so with you know longer and longer range, and by the way, this has implications not just for passenger, passenger vehicles, but for trucking as well. We have 36 long range Tesla semis operating in California today, 520 mile range from the Pepsi facility in Modesto uh, today. That's um, fully loaded. So you can see the envelope of possibility sort of expanding really every month with improvements in battery technology. But we're working really hard to get the charging infrastructure installed as, as quickly as we can and just to provide that certainty. To me, the way to think about it, the goal is to be like a cell phone. When you buy your your iPhone or whatever phone you use, you never ask the question, where am I going to get electricity to charge my phone? Because electricity <laughs> is ubiquitous in the built environment. And um, that's what we're aiming to do for EV charging, just charging accessible everywhere. We received a few questions about housing and charging and different types of housing. Um, in one of the questions, Frank Milliken from Virginia asks, how will people in townhouse communities without driveways be able to charge their electric vehicles conveniently? This is a question near and dear to my heart as someone who lives in an apartment and has a vehicle that plugs in. I mean, what is California working on there? Yeah, so I think that is a great use case for high speed level three fast charging. You want an experience that's like going to a gas station. You plug in, you charge up once a week and you're you're good uh, because there are a lot of places that are just very constrained. They don't have a garage. Um, parking is tight. The other thing that I think is really promising is, is actually what Germany's done around public parking on streets where they're actually attaching EV chargers to light poles uh, along public streets. So you already have the structure and you already have the power and um, to make that more accessible for public parking along streets. So those are the kinds of solutions uh, for, for that use case. And I think I have time for one more question. I just want to ask about the role of hybrids and plug-in hybrids specifically in California going forward. I mean, I've talked to consumers who find them to be a really good option. You know, you can do your day-to-day -day driving on the battery, and then for longer trips, you have the hybrid option. I mean, how is California thinking about that going forward? So I think you make a great point uh, for long-range trips, you know, people who don't have confidence in, in the charging infrastructure being there. Uh, I do think that is kind of what's driving the hybrid demand now. Uh, I think that will fade away with charging infrastructure just becoming ubiquitous. And uh, then, you know, again, with a hybrid, you are still having to maintain um, internal combustion engine and all that goes with that. Uh, and so I think that is something that's here for now. But looking ahead, when charging and fast charging is ubiquitous, when the range of the vehicles is longer, uh, we're going to see EVs everywhere. Thanks so much, David. We're going to be following this pretty closely. It's a huge transition. So thank you for joining us here on Washington Post Live. My pleasure. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Please stay with us for the next segment of the conversation. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
Hi there, I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of the Cypher Brief, a national security news organization focused on security and intelligence. Today, I'm very pleased to be here with you to talk about a different kind of intelligence that's really driving innovation in the sustainability and electric vehicle sector. Now, as we know, the bulk of this innovation comes from the private sector. So it's my pleasure to welcome Jack Wiest, Vice President and General Manager of Intel Automotive. Jack, it's nice to see you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you, Suzanne. You know, when I think about Intel, the first thing I always think about is technology. But cars have traditionally not been the first thing, but Intel's invested a lot in cars. I, I, I'm interested in how you're thinking about sustainability in this space that is really dominated by a significant disruption in the industry. I think you said it right. This industry is undergoing massive disruption right now, uh, almost existential where I think this industry could look very different by the end of the decade compared to what it looks like today. And it's really being driven by three different forces. The first is the vehicle architecture itself needs to change and evolve. Current vehicles are built on over a hundred different microcontrollers strung together with a mile of copper cabling. Uh, it's an old architecture that needs to evolve and embrace modern high-performance compute. Second, the transition to electric vehicles um, and figuring out what does it mean to build a car around a computer and a battery rather than around a combustion engine. But third, if we don't figure out a way to do this in a sustainable and scalable way, then we're not going to be able to deliver the benefits of an electric future to all. We can't have these concepts be limited just to premium luxury segment vehicles. We need to scale them top to bottom across all price points. Yeah, what you're doing is no easy thing. So let's focus for just a minute on the challenges that are ahead. What do you see as the number one challenge for innovators as we move closer to kind of a complete transition from fossil fuels to electric powered vehicles? But the single biggest problem is the battery. It's the most expensive component in the vehicle. It's the heaviest component in the vehicle. Uh, and they're getting even bigger as every year goes on. So we're going in the wrong direction. And then if you chart out availability of the raw materials needed to build that supply chain of batteries, we have a gap today and that gap's going to get even bigger. So as an industry, we can either hope and pray for a battery technology breakthrough, or we can start to focus and work together on the efficiency side of the equation, which means let's make better and more intelligent use of the energy that's stored within the battery so that we can have smaller, cheaper, lighter batteries for a more sustainable and scalable future. I think it's very fair to say that you probably agree with me, no one entity can really drive this alone. So I'm curious to know how Intel is thinking about sort of collaboration industry-wide? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually something we've done before. So if you remember first-generation laptops, they weighed 20 pounds, you got 30 minutes of battery life, because really inside that laptop was a desktop PC with a battery attached. And that desktop PC was designed to be plugged into the wall. It's an unlimited energy source. So there was really nothing about that PC platform that was designed for energy efficiency in mind. We have the same challenge today with first generation electric vehicles. It's really a combustion engine vehicle platform that generates so much energy at idle um, that there's really been no reason or impetus for the industry to be able to think about what does power management mean in the context of a vehicle platform. And so that's why we're very proud to announce a brand new 
open industry standards effort in partnership with SAE uh, titled J3311 electric vehicle platform power management and what it does is it brings proven and used concepts from the PC industry and applies those to a vehicle platform so that we can be more intelligent about how we use the energy turn things off when we don't need it and conserve energy and make that battery last longer uh, for greater range or allow automakers to shrink the size, cost, and weight of that vehicle and still enjoy the same amount of range as we have today. So we think that's going to be critical, but we've got to do it together as an industry collaborating in an open environment, creating an open standard that we can all benefit from. It really seems like setting standards on something like this makes a ton of sense. But let me ask you about scalability. How can really the industry achieve scalability from a technology perspective to still meet the demands of what looks like it's going to be an all-electric future? Yeah, it's a great point because if if this technology is only available in the highest end premium luxury segments, we're not sufficiently scaling it top to bottom. And so as a semiconductor industry, this is where we need to offer solutions to the automotive industry that allows them to deliver energy efficient and sustainable electric vehicles at every different price point across their vehicle lineup. And so with Intel, our embrace of a disaggregated chiplet based technology is one of the key ingredients to help do that. And we've released an open industry standard around chiplets as well. So we believe in an open approach. Let's lift all boats. Let's help the entire industry solve these challenges together. Because as you said, no one of us can do it alone. Yeah. Jack Wiest, Vice President and General Manager of Intel Automotive. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Suzanne. My pleasure. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. And for those of you just joining us, I'm Shannon Osaka, Climate Zeitgeist Reporter for The Washington Post. I am now joined by Apoor Bargava, CEO and co-founder of WeaveGrid. Apoor, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hey, good morning, Shannon. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, I'd just love to start by talking through some basics. I'm curious if you can explain the original thought process behind starting WeaveGrid and the problem that you were seeking to address. Yeah, it's, you know, it now takes, uh, it takes me back a little bit. It feels like forever ago. But, you know, back in 2017, 2018, when I was still in grad school at Stanford, one of the things that was just very obvious, especially when you live in California, is just how many electric vehicles were out there and how quickly they were growing. And, and just at a very basic first principles level, you know, the, the video that you were showing earlier kind of talks about the fact that historically these two sectors, transportation and energy for the last century, have, have been very siloed and very disparate from one another. Now, as these two start coming together very quickly, as the 280 million vehicles that, you know, passenger vehicles we have in the United States start going electric, you know, we've got to bring it on to an electric grid. And of course, there's going to be a dependency that that grid can power those vehicles affordably, reliably, and, you know, in the cleanest way possible. And at the same time, as 280 million batteries on wheels start showing up, uh, in people's households, in parking lots all over the country, there's got to be a way to also use them in a much more intelligent way. And so that was the premise that my co-founder and I sort of had in the early days, which is how are we going to make sure that this transition can happen as quickly as possible? And how do we ensure that we can provide customers access to the cheapest, cleanest, and most uh, most reliable charging possible? And in doing so, support the electric grid and 
and really transform EVs from being perceived as some sort of liability to frankly becoming an incredible grid asset. What does that EV grid integration look like? I mean, in an ideal world, how would that work? Yeah, uh, you know, I I appreciated uh, Chair Ahochild right before kind of talking about the cell phone metaphor, and I, I really like that too. I kind of think about it the same way that you think about your cell phone today, which is at the end of the day, we plug in our iPhones and we use them everywhere whenever we want. But I think of EV integration, grid integration as the coming together of these two sectors and and essentially a highly personalized approach to charging. So it's already too many words, EV grid integration, right? It's a confusing uh, topic. It really needs to be something that is so behind the scenes. It's something where I should trust as a driver that when I plug in my car, I'm getting access to the cleanest, cheapest, and most reliable charging possible, no matter whether I'm charging at home, at a fast charging station, at a workplace. And and I should also ensure that those vehicles are being able to deliver some value or being able to help the grid in some way. But, But as a customer, I don't wanna be thinking about that. And so why I think about it, the cell phone as a metaphor is, you know, we're constantly being balanced on the back end by AT&T and Verizon. You know, I, I can switch between 5G and 4G LTE constantly. And that load balancing is always happening for the applications that we care about, whether it be Netflix or your email or whatever. And so that ideal future of EV integration is one where we don't think about all the amazing things our EVs are able to do to help bring down emissions and keep the grid reliable. But at the same time, we're getting access to a completely seamless charging experience. And what does WeaveGrid's solution look like for this? And how does it incorporate AI and machine learning? Yeah, so so WeaveGrid is fundamentally a software company that uh, uses artificial intelligence. And obviously that's become very buzzy recently, but but it's been something we've been doing for a while. And, and, and it, it comes down to this idea of using all the data that exists today in both of these sectors and essentially building a platform that stitches together the utilities that own and operate the power grid of today, as well as the automakers and the charging companies that are building the vehicles that are increasingly connected, like Intel was talking about, and the charging stations that also have a ton of data. And first and foremost, understanding that charging behavior, then using machine learning to forecast how that charging behavior can actually impact the electric grid and and literally down to the last asset on the grid. What's going to happen as all of these folks start buying Teslas and F-150s? And then really starting to automate and orchestrate that charging in a much more seamless way so that you are charging when the wind is blowing and there's a ton of extra wind on on the system or you're charging at moments where you know your local neighborhood is not overloaded from four people charging at exactly the same time. And so WeaveGrid software really does all of that intelligence and, and, and uses that data to basically build that much more seamless customer experience so that you as a customer, again, go home, plug in your car, don't think about it. But at the end of the night, are going to have a fully charged vehicle and also are saving a lot of money in the process of doing so. I think most of our viewers are probably not thinking about the grid that much unless something goes wrong, unless there's a blackout or they lose power or something like that. 
I mean, for our audience, can you talk through how the grid is holding up now as we're trying to electrify so many more things and why, you know, improving the grid is so important to our larger climate goals? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I like to even unpack the word grid. I feel like the gr the grid is this like sort of like you know convoluted term, and 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 unfortunately, again, to your point, we only think about it when the power goes out. But the grid is fundamentally made up of three sectors, right? There's generation, the power plants that all of us know, uh, solar, wind, nuclear, coal. There is transmission, those those big high voltage lines you see going across the country, whether by highways or or across fields. And then there's distribution, which is really everything else that makes up, you know, the the poles and wires, the transformers, everything else that makes up the electricity delivery to our uh, to our homes and to our factories and our, our and our businesses. Now, the electric grid is about a century old, right? We've we've had it literally. It's the first country in uh, in the world to have an electric grid. And it is the absolute linchpin to the decarbonization of the whole economy. And when we're thinking about transportation decarbonization, the part of the grid that's actually most sort of most vulnerable, but also could use the most benefit from vehicle electrification is that last mile system called distribution. And that's because about 80% of the cost of electrifying our, our homes and particularly our vehicles is going to be felt on that last mile system where we've just never really designed your your neighborhood cul-de-sac right for for five evs or 10 evs and so there's a lot of there's a lot of supply chain issues around going up there and upgrading all of that but also we don't need to do so there's just ways where we can use that system and more fully utilize it and as we get into those tipping points of electrification we can in a much smarter way not just manage the vehicles, but also then start to tactically and strategically upgrade the system where it needs to be done. And so, you know, as large-scale electrification really starts to take off as it's as it's happening, um, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to upgrade the grid. We want it to be reliable. We want it to be affordable for all, and we of course want to enable that that clean energy transition. Um, and so I think that's where we're going to see the bulk of the investment having to go, which is our our fixed infrastructure, the T and D that delivers power to our homes. I remember we had a conversation a little over a year ago and you gave me some very scary statistics about, you know, how antiquated that distribution system is. I mean, how did we mm -hmm. get to that point? And do you think we're seeing a greater realization among lawmakers, utilities, et cetera, that, you know, we do really need to make some, as you're saying, like targeted upgrades, but some upgrades? Yeah, I think. I mean, how did we get here? You know, this is this is obviously a a live recording, not a history lesson. But I'll say, like, it's it, we we've 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 spent a century um, in a in a world where the last in a big innovation that happened in the in the end consumer's home that really used a lot of power was the air conditioning unit. I mean, since then we've done an amazing job in energy efficiency and and really since about 1973 when the energy crisis happened for the last 50 odd years we've really had flat to declining load growth in the united states um that is all changing overnight and it's changing not just because of vehicle electrification but it's really changing because of a series of things happening all at the same time so you've got vehicle electrification You've got AI data centers showing up every day. You've got hydrogen hubs. You've got new factories going into the ground. All of that requires power. 
And so I, I like the sort of phrase that's become almost common amongst the amongst the industry, which is we've got a two to three X the grid. Well, guess what? In the last 50 years, we haven't done that. And so two to three Xing the grid requires a multifold strategy. One is we're gonna we're gonna have to build. We're gonna have to build large parts of the grid up, and we're gonna have to make the grid more reliable to be able to handle all of these new requirements. And we're gonna have to be a lot smarter about how we actually utilize our system, which is taking advantage of all the flexibility that exists in devices like electric vehicles, where it's sitting around for 10 hours a night you know, at home. And, and so we can actually manage that charging in a much more intelligent way so that not everyone's charging at exactly 5 p.m. or even everyone charging at 11 p.m., but we're actually creating that personalized schedule for each and every one of us that accommodates our needs, first and foremost, but also helps support that electric system and ensures that we're fully utilizing what's out there. So I think the grid is going to be really critical to all decarbonization efforts, no matter whether we're thinking about vehicles or, you know, frankly, building uh, lithium uh, lithium mining facilities or or factories for EVs. If we're imagining the future that we want, right, which is a decarbonized future, we have EVs everywhere. Everyone has a heat pump. Um, I mean, that is just, I think a lot of people, they do get concerned. I mean, it is a lot more, we just, as you're saying, we need to two, three X the grid. How much of that can be done with things like smarter software and management like you're talking about? And how much of that is just, we need to actually install more distribution, more generation, yeah. I would say it's it's a yes and, it's an all of the above strategy kind of thing. You know, it's, um, there's no doubt that intelligence in the system, especially if you're using really, really smart AI, for example, and you're really trying to orchestrate all of these end devices, it can absolutely bring down the cost and the need for a lot of these upgrades. I mean, even in our own deployments, we see that we are able to shave off over 50% of the load on a part of the system that you're looking at, let's say, a substation in a in a in a neighborhood or in a city, we can bring down that load by 50% today and, and going forward even more. So, so there's a huge amount of savings there, right? And we need to buy ourselves time because you know if you're looking for an average transformer, that's those little cans that you see up on the up on your uh, you know on your neighborhood pole tops, like an average transformer today, you could be set back by about 12 to 18 months in supply chain timelines for a utility. And so it's not like we can build our way out of it overnight, but there is no doubt that we will need to keep building. And 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 maybe if I can just like take a second, of course that means that we're going to spend more on electricity holistically, but our net energy spending as a society is going to come down as we move away from oil, as we move away from natural gas. And that's going to be huge as we think about the savings to all consumers, whether you're an early adopter in FUV or not. And I think, I think you know, we still have the opportunity to build a much more reliable grid in the process. I spent some time with David talking about that consumer side and some of the barriers to EV adoption. I mean, you have sort of a window into a very particular set of users of EVs. I mean, what do you see as one of the biggest drawbacks or holdups in that adoption of EVs? Yeah, so, you know, we are in a very privileged place because we work with utilities who own and operate the grid. We also work very closely with automakers, so have a lot of insight into how they're thinking about a lot of this and their charging strategies, of course. And then we have a large driver base that that really 
uses our our products and services and and thanks to whom we can actually deliver this value back to back to society i i think the way i view it is that we still need to be building a lot more affordable vehicles that is definitely the case i think charging infrastructure needs to be brought up on a reliability standard that frankly matches where tesla is and that is that is the gold standard in charging infrastructure and it's one where uh, where where most people i think you know, especially with the NACS transition that David talked about, I think we're going to see people getting there. Um, we also do forget, though, that 80 percent of charging today happens at home. And if you add in workplace charging, if you add in all of the charging infrastructure going into multifamily units, charging, fast charging ends up becoming, you mentioned you're a Zeitgeist reporter. I mean, it, charging infrastructure, particularly on the highways, is a Zeitgeist topic. It's the thing we all think about, but it's not actually where we mostly charge. Where we mostly charge is at home, is at work, is at you know, at at our WalMarts and our and our um and our and our Whole Foods potentially. But the point is, all of that charging infrastructure is also getting built out. So I think charging anxiety will go away. It is the holdup today. But David also mentioned we're seeing longer and longer ranges in every vehicle, and that's also going to reduce that anxiety. What I'm most excited about, frankly, are seeing the automakers, the OEMs, really producing. Um, longer range, cheaper vehicles. I think that's coming and I think that'll really help move us forward. I'm also a big fan of plug-in hybrids because I do think that that's a great solution in the near term to get people comfortable with the idea of plugging in. So I, I think I think those things are are happening very quickly. I think you're so right about the fast charging being the, the zeitgeist topic that we all focus on because I think it it feels the most similar to the gas station but EV charging is really not the same as a gas station. It really is a little bit of the mix between the gas station and then that cell phone analogy where you're just plugging it in overnight. Um, so there is some complexity there that hopefully we can help folks understand. I wanna ask you about the Inflation Reduction Act, which obviously huge you know, history-making spend that the federal government did to reduce carbon pollution through subsidies, tax credits. I'm just curious if you can help us understand the impact of that law on the ground, what you have been seeing, and how that has affected WeaveGrid. I mean, both the IRA and the IAJA, huge fans of just the policy direction that the federal government took in actually making it very clear where we need to get to. I think the United States traditionally has needed a little bit more energy strategy, and finally we sort of saw that showing up um, in, in the last few years. Now, there's so much that needs to go in to the ground, literally, right, from charging infrastructure like we talked about. But also, I think a rising tide lifts all boats. And so we're big fans of the fact that the tax credits for electric vehicles are going to start driving up those sales. We'll bring down vehicles down that cost curve, especially as we're moving from sort of that middle market to lower cost EVs. Um, obviously, onshoring a lot of our factories and our supply chains, really critical to making this a more resilient industry. And I think the one thing that's been a huge bipartisan win, frankly, from the IRA and IGA is seeing how much investment everyone wants to make in making our grid more secure, more reliable, more affordable. I mean, that is a critical and necessary investment if we want to see large-scale electrification. So it's also not something that I think any any side necessarily is disagreeing with because we also want cheaper and more affordable electricity. So there's no debate there. And I, I feel like that was one of the things that 
that WeaveGrid has really been hugely supportive of, and, and I know a lot of our partners have as well. I just want to pull back as we near the end of our time and just look at decarbonization in the U.S. broadly. I mean, for you, where are you seeing the biggest challenges and pitfalls, let's say, in the next 10 to 15 years? Is it the grid? Is it something else? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people people say, and, you know, the, the kind of company that we are, it's, it's branded climate tech. And I often joke, uh, what is climate tech? Is it, Do you just mean economy tech? Because what we're trying to do, right, is is redo the entire economy with a framework of companies that are going to drive forward decarbonization. And, and it has to become a, a center point of your strategy. As I look towards the decarbonization of the whole economy, though, no matter which sector you're thinking about, transportation, electricity, industrial decarbonization, heating and cooling, everything, all of those things are moving towards a world of requiring clean electricity to enable it. So, so the use cases for clean electricity are going up very quickly. We can build all the solar and wind in the world, right? We can build all the nuclear geothermal. But at the end of the day, we need some way to transport those clean electrons to those clean use cases that are going to drive that decarbonization. And that's where the grid is, again, that central linchpin. And so I think a lot about the fact that we're going to need to both invest deeply in the grid, invest in smarter solutions like WeaveGrid, and make sure that it doesn't become, frankly, the biggest bottleneck to the decarbonization transitions that we're trying to we're trying to see here. And so I'm personally very optimistic. I think we can fix it. I think we can move faster, but we have to really put in some intentional effort. And I hope WeaveGrid can be a part of that. Well, I could talk about bottlenecks on the grid and transmission all day, but I think that we'll have to leave it there. Apoor, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for being on Washington Post Live. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.